Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I can't wait to meet some of these men that the Bible spends so much time talking about. None of them is spoken of more in Scripture than David. More chapters, more verses, more words are expended on the life of David than any other character in all of Scripture. As great as Moses was, as great as Abraham was, as great as the uh, Old and New Testament saints are, the one person spoken of more in Scripture, the one whose life is more in focus than anyone else is David. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason why we study the life of David and why we're studying this in this uh, year-long series. David, the scripture says, is a man after God's own heart. And so obviously the question we would want to ask ourselves is what is it to be a man after God's own heart? There is so much messianic typology in David. Uh, I wear, I'm, 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 I tire sometimes of those who would say something like this. I, I really don't want to study the Old Testament. I don't understand it. Uh, I just want to study the New Testament. Or are those who would say maybe just the opposite? I'm more intrigued by the stories of the Old Testament than I am with the New. And, and so we tend to gravitate toward one or the, others of, one or the other of the Testaments, and, and we miss the point. The Old Testament and the New Testament are one testament. It's one book. I can't imagine pulling out a novel and reading half of the novel and saying, well, that's, that's all I need to read. I'm done now. I've only gotten to page 200 of this 400-page novel, and I'm finished. Uh, it was a great first half of the book. And yet, in a much bigger sense, we do that all the time with the way in which we read our Bibles. We read only those passages we understand. We want to read those passages that tell us the, the wonderful stories. For example, as you're going to see in just a moment, we read the wonderful story of Ruth. What a great book. How many of you have ever read the book of Ruth all the way through beginning to end? How many of you have never read the book of Ruth all the way through beginning to end? How many of you wouldn't admit it? Okay. <laughs> it's a short book. Go home and read it. But I've got to tell you something. There is no conceivable way you could ever understand the book of Ruth without the rest of Old Testament Scripture. You, you, you'd read the story and you'd say, well, that's a wonderful story. you got this woman who has this tragedy happen to her husband and her sons-in-law, and you got these three women who now are, are abandoned uh, because of death by their husbands. They're, in, they're in, a, uh, in a culture in which a woman living alone was the worst possible thing that could ever happen to a woman. They leave because there's all kinds of problems. They look for, they look for some security. They follow after this older woman, and you have this wonderful romantic story of this woman named Ruth, 
who follows after this older woman who became her mentor, and she meets this guy named Boaz. Next thing you know, she's washing his feet and sitting at the bottom of his bed while he's sound asleep, and he wakes up, and one day they get married, and what a wonderful romantic story that is. And you read that story, and you say, what in the world is that doing in the Bible? And unless you know how the rest of it fits and why that story's even there, why those few chapters are even there, you miss the whole point. It's like picking up the novel in the middle, reading a few lines and saying, I don't understand what's going on. Read the whole thing. Such is the case with the life of David. You can't understand King David without understanding King Jesus. You can't understand King Jesus without understanding King David. The whole reason the story of David is in the Old Testament is to establish the kingdom of Israel under the name of David to fulfill the promises that God makes that he will bring a spiritual kingdom to this earth made up of Jew and Gentile alike and the one who sits on that throne will be King Jesus who will come after the line of King David. So you can't understand King Jesus without understanding King David. doesn't make sense. You're picking up the story halfway through. So there's all kinds of messianic typology in the study of David. But we also have in this man struggles against sin that are so common to us. I want to be called a man after God's own heart. Do you? Do you want others to speak of you, especially God? Do you want God to speak of you as, that's a man after my own heart? That's a woman after my own heart. But now wait a minute. As you're reading that novel, as you're reading 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, this man after God's own heart struggled against some of the things that you and I struggle with, only in his case, it was public. What you and I oftentimes do in private we think we get away with because the only one who knows we're doing those things is God. And we can kind of write him off because he's invisible. But nobody ever stands up and points a finger at us and, say, and says to us, hey, I saw what you did last night at 9 p.m. Nobody ever stands up and says, and this is how it's going to affect your job. And the whole kingdom's going to know. When we go to church Sunday morning, someone's going to stand up and say, hey, Joe or, or, or Jane or whoever you might be, hey, look, I know what you did last night. We get away with it because, or we think we do, because it's so private. Not the case with David. He sinned privately, and it was exposed publicly. Publicly. In fact, it caused him to write the 51st Psalm where he says something to the effect of, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, which is his position of privilege. Do not take that position of privilege from me. He really came to understand that his sin was so severe it could cost him his kingdom. It could cost him his kingship. Here is this man after God's own heart. This man who is after God's own heart lusting after a woman taking a bath outside of his balcony. Now you say, well, I've been there, I've done that. Most men sitting here can acknowledge that they've done the same thing. Did you kill the man's wife or, or, or the, uh, the, the wife's husband in order to get her into your bed? 
Did you then cover it up and make it look like he was a hero that went out to battle for you when you met that guy? Did he come to you and say something to the effect of, I am so loyal to you, I would give my life for you. If you want to send me to the front lines, go ahead. In fact, Mr. King, I know I'm home on leave. I've got to leave here. I've got a few days from battle that you've given me, and I, I'm supposed to spend those with my wife, but I'm not going to go to bed with her. I'm going to have a sexual fast in your honor because I want to be ready to go where you send me to go, and I'm going to die for you if necessary, not knowing that that very same man is sleeping with your wife. That's a man after God's own heart, right? When I read that story, when I see what David did, I immediately I say, I'm not capable of that. I am not capable of doing something like that. I mean, that takes a real spiritual loser to do something like that. I would never, ever do something like that. My sense of personal pride and sense of, uh, of moral uprightness and my sense of, of moral one-upmanship says, I can't possibly do what that man did. Yeah, right. When we really sit down and examine what the heart really looks like, we may not do those very same things, but we do things that are equally offensive in the, in the sight of God. Yet he's called a man after God's own heart. So for that reason, we need to study the life of David. We need to explore a man after God's own heart who struggled with the very same things you and I struggled with. Last time we were together, we talked about the backdrop into which David is introduced in Scripture. He's, he's nowhere on the pages of the Bible until we are introduced to King Saul. The people clamored after a king. They wanted to be like their neighbors because they entered into a period of humanistic uncertainty. The nation had no leadership. There was moral decay within, moral decay without. Everyone did what, what was right in his own eyes. That's what the book of Judges says. By the way, you can't understand First and Second Samuel without reading the book of Judges. You need to understand the book of Judges before you can understand First and Second Samuel because the book of Judges tells us about these cycles of apostasy and repentance that ended after 13 periods of Judges ended with every man doing what is right in his own eyes. So when you read that, you say, well, wait a minute, that book ends, but it doesn't really end. It's everybody's doing what is right in his own eyes. And then suddenly on the scene, we are introduced to this character called Samuel, a man who was uh, uh, given over by his mother at birth to be raised by the priest, to be the moral leader of a nation. So Samuel is the priest who anoints Saul. But you can't understand Samuel's ministry without understanding the book of Judges, and you can't understand Judges without reading Joshua. You need to understand Joshua in the context of the first five books of the Bible. You need to understand Joshua in the context of Moses. So as we begin to build these, these, these chapters, we begin to see the story unfolding. Remember, it's very important to understand this. The Bible is one book. There are 66 chapters in the Bible. That's it, 66 chapters. The first chapter is called what? Genesis. The last chapter is called what? Revelation tells us how the book ends. It's the ending. It's the last chapter. 
But how are you going to understand the last chapter without the first chapter? And that's why, by the way, the first chapter of the book, which is what? Genesis is under so much attack by our scientific community and our educational community because if we can mythologize the first chapter, then that makes the rest of the book, the other 50, uh, 65 chapters, suspect. And so we go after that first chapter, which is Genesis, and specifically the opening paragraphs of that first chapter, which is chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis, which speak of creation and the fall of man. You following me? Shake your heads yes. Okay. If you're not following me, shake your heads yes anyhow. What are we saying here? You need to understand how the pieces fit together. Now we are introduced to an important piece in this redemption picture. The building of the kingdom. When Jesus came in his public ministry and was baptized by John, we are told from that point on that the kingdom of God has come. Why does the word kingdom appear there? Why is the kingdom of God come? Why does he come and call himself a king? Who is this David? What is this Davidic kingdom? What is this uh, this whole idea of the kings in the Old Testament, what is Judah and Israel and the dividing of the kingdom? Who is Solomon? Know where the book of Proverbs, most of it came from? Solomon. Who's Solomon? Where did he come from? How can you understand Proverbs without understanding Solomon? How can you understand Solomon without understanding who his dad was? Who was Solomon's dad? David. So we have David, we have Solomon, we have the Proverbs, we have this one book building this majestic story of redemption. That's why we study this. Well, into this context of fear and uncertainty, Samuel anoints Saul to be the king. He had a good image. He was anointed to be king because he had a good image. God delivered the people over to the clamoring of their heart. They wanted a king like the other nations. He gave them a king like the other nations. They wanted to be like the people around them. He gave them a king so that they could be like the people around them. And he delivered the nation over to this tall, dark, and handsome man called Saul. And that's exactly what he was, tall, dark, and handsome. He was stately. He was clearly leader material, at least if you judge it from externals. Saul became the king. Well, as we're going to see, Saul's life begins to take a dramatic turn. We read the last time we were together, the, the lost calling of Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 15, where, where uh, Saul is instructed by God to go into battle against the Amalekites. God was very specific in the instructions he gave through Samuel. He said, I want you to go in there. I want you to kill everything that walks. Take nothing for yourself. Don't take any of the, uh, the booty. Don't take any of the possessions. I want you to wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth because I am going to be executing my divine judgment and retribution against them for what they did when Moses brought the children up out of Egypt and they attacked the women and the children. In other words, I am going to bring the day of vengeance on to the people I have promised the day of vengeance to. The gospel light is being threatened, but it'll never go out. Jesus promised it'll never go out. In fact, he said even the gates of hell 
will not stand against the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were periods like that. This was one of them. This was one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. The people clamored for a king. Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes, and God brought them a king and delivered them over to the fact that they would not have him as their God and him as their king. They wanted a human. They wanted a human uh, machine. They wanted a political entity so that they could be like the nations around them. God said to Samuel, or through Samuel to Saul, I want you to make sure that when you wipe out the Amalekites, you bring divine retribution and divine justice in a way that the world will remember it. I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. Don't take any of the women. Don't take any of the children. Don't take any of the booty. Not their dogs, their pets, their cattle, their sheep, their, their goats. Kill them all! That ought to, by the way, give you a picture of what God thinks of sin. Somehow or another, we think God's going to wink at sin. God hates sin. God detests sin. If you don't believe that, you don't understand what happened on the cross. So I have no problems believing when he ordered the destruction of the Amalekites that he was perfectly just in doing so because God is a holy God. We are sinful, so we don't fully comprehend it, but God is a holy God. Well, Saul said, well, you know, I'm going to take the king. He's going to be my little trophy. I want everybody to see that I'm the king, and I took the other king. Now that king's serving me. So he took Agag, the king. In fact, Saul went one step further. He went over into one of the territories that most Israelites would constantly pass by there at Gilgal, and he built an altar to himself. This is King Saul. This is, this is a testimony to the power of King Saul. He builds this altar to himself. He allows his soldiers to take the booty. Samuel is told by God, go and deal with this issue. Deal with it with the holiness that I've given you. And he goes and he faces Samuel, or Saul. Samuel does and he says, uh, uh, and, and we talked about this last week, Samuel uh, confronts Saul with what he did and, and, and Saul begins to speak in religious language couching his sin in religious language, cannot reference God as his own God, continually refers to God as Samuel's God. It's an ugly picture. Begins to excuse himself, saying, I didn't take anything. Meantime, Samuel hears some uh, bang of the sheep, and some mooing of the cows. And he hears it and he says, well, what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? How come I hear these cows mooing? What's going on here? You're saying you didn't take anything. I hear it. I see it. Oh, I didn't do that. The soldiers did that. They were just so excited. The soldiers, I didn't do that. He takes no responsibility for his sin. And Samuel then pronounces a judgment upon Saul. Look with me at, uh, as we get into this, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Um, and it says in verse um, 33, uh, 30, 34 and 35, it says, And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Go back to chapter 13. 
1 Samuel chapter 13, as we get into this a little bit more, I want to make this statement. Even amidst this horrible, dark, desolate period in the history of Israel, when God would have been rightful and just to execute Saul and the children and the soldiers who violated his command, God would have been perfectly justified in grace. He never abandons his own. God is never left without a people. And so amidst this horrible darkness, this day of bittersweet victory, uh, sweet in the sense that there was a massive destruction of the Amalekites, but bitter in that it was couched in disobedience and compromise. God's grace does not abandon his people. There was a great period of disillusionment as the result of this. When, Sa when Samuel executed Agag and refused to go back and put his stamp of approval on Saul's ministry, the people saw that. The only one in the kingdom more powerful than Saul was Samuel. The only one who carried more respect than Saul was Samuel. And when the prophet withdrew himself and pronounced his judgment on Saul, the people were scared. The people were afraid. The people were disillusioned. There was fear that covered the land as the result of this pronouncement of judgment against the king. What do you do? What do you do when you're the people? And the kingdom, and the king in particular, has been taken from you. When God has pronounced his judgment on the kingdom and on the king, what do you do? How do you handle that? 1 Samuel 13, when Saul's character led the people into great disillusionment, insecurity, and international danger, God once again speaks. 1 Samuel 13, verse 13, You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. There it is. A man after God's own heart. You know, there's something wrong if your boys cannot say, men, I want to be just like my dad when I grow up. It should be a no-brainer for your children. A no-brainer. I want to be just like my dad. I want to be just like my mom. If they have to think about it, you've missed something. You've missed something. Who are your child's heroes? Hold your place there. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I love this passage. This is one of the great passages in the book of 1 Corinthians that just speaks worlds to the issue of, that we're discussing right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look with me at verse 26. Brothers, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Brothers, I like this. Think of what you were when you were called. 
All right, I'm thinking about what I was when I was called. Anybody else here thinking about what you were when God called you to salvation? What were you? I heard some testimonies recently from some, some brothers in the Lord. Just blew my socks off. Uh, how God reduced them to nothing. God just brought them on their faces. Uh, they, were, they were nothing and knew it. And sometimes that's where God needs to bring us. He says, now brothers, what were you? Think about it. Remember, what were you when you were called? Not many of you were wise by human standards. In other words, not many of you, by the way, he doesn't say in any of these cases, all of you. He just says not many of you. That doesn't mean that God doesn't call wise people. God does call wise. We'll talk about that in a moment. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. You know, when God called some of us, if you dropped dead the, the day after he called you, nobody would really know. Maybe not even care. Not many of you were of noble birth. Any kings or princes here? Now, maybe some of you can trace your genealogy back, but uh, not many kings or nobles or princes here. Verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are nothing to nullify the things that are something. Now why did he do this? So that no one can stand before him and boast. Well, that takes us back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Here we have the introduction to the question begins to be answered, what makes for a man after God's own heart? I want to tell you up front what it's not. It is not the character of a man that makes for a man after God's own heart. I read a book by a famous author who wrote a book on David. I took it on vacation and I read the book. This is a very influential and very uh, powerful preacher of the gospel, a very gifted communicator and very excellent writer, and has impacted many, many people for Christ, but he's totally missed it on this one. The tendency of a lot of Christians is we tend to look at passages like this, a man after God's own heart. God is saying, I want to select a man after my own heart. And immediately we begin to process God in this fashion, that he's sitting there in heaven and he's scanning the territory uh, like, a, like a computer. He's scanning the territory looking for someone who qualifies. Looking for someone who has all the necessary skills and talents and abilities. One who has a character of heart. One who is bent on serving him. And because of that character, because of that integrity, because of that sincerity, God says, I'm going to choose them. And that's not at all why God chose David. Now that is not to say that David didn't have integrity. When we read Psalm 78, turn to Psalm 78 for a moment and look with me at verse 70. We know that David did have integrity. 
That's something that's missing today with, with a lot of us. We don't have much integrity. We don't honor people's time. We say we're going to be somewhere, or we're not a man or a woman of our word. A handshake isn't sufficient anymore. We lack integrity. We conduct our business with, with, uh, with uh, false motives. We cheat people. We rob people. We lie. We, we, uh, we twist. We, we look for an angle. We can't be believed when somebody looks at us and says, Is, do you really mean what you're saying? We say, well, we don't know whether we mean what we're saying, but because we're not sure how it's going to pan out for me. Integrity is something where, look at Psalm 78. He chose David his servant. Took him from the sheep pens. That's important, by the way. Took him from the sheep pens. That, that fits that 1 Corinthians passage, doesn't it? Not many mighty are chosen. Not many influential. All this guy's doing is cleaning out sheep pens. He's sitting out in the, in the field taking care of sheep. Taking care of sheep is a dirty job. It's not white-collar work. He took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, or Israel. His inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, and with skillful hands he led them. Now I'm telling you that, in order to say this, David was a man who had enormous integrity. David was also a very gifted man in terms of shepherding skills. He had all of those tools. Those raw ingredients were there. That's not why God chose him. Why do I know that? Because David would be able to boast. He would be able to say, this is why God chose me, because I'm skillful and I have integrity. There were many skillful people. There were many people with integrity. God was choosing a man after his own heart. That's a key phrase. That's an important phrase. And you need to understand what that means. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What a beautiful picture. God looks through the earth to see whose hearts are fully committed to them and he strengthens them. He strengthens them. Now listen, my heart could be, my heart could be fully committed to him and I sin. I could still love my God and struggle with issues that seek to divorce me from my God. Such was the case with David. But God did not choose David because he was a man of integrity. He did not choose David because he was skillful. Otherwise, David could boast. This is certainly what God desires. But to paint the picture that God is sitting in the heavens, searching, hoping, longing, looking for a man he can use is the scourge of Arminianism. God is not in the business of setting his plans in the concrete of human ability. God does not look for capable men who can execute his will. He makes out of the depravity of human hearts men who are equipped and thus capable to achieve his plans and his purposes. I think, for example, as I study my own life, there are certain inherent gifts that God gave me. 
When you study my family background and my family culture, there are many gifted communicators in my family structure. All you have to do is come to a family gathering and hear them tell stories. Uh, it's amazing. All you got to do is come and sit and listen to some of my aunts and uncles and cousins and everybody tell stories. There are many gifted, very talented people who have natural abilities to communicate. Now, many of them do not know the Lord. And so those talents are unused talents. So the abilities or the talents that God gives us have to be captured and harnessed by the Holy Spirit for His glory. No man can, cl can claim glory in that respect. It is God who takes the talents and the abilities and harnesses them to accomplish his ends and his objectives. It is not the orchestrations of men. It is the plan of God in building his covenant and his kingdom and his redemption program begun all the way back with the seed of the woman in the first chapter of the book we call Genesis. It is God unfolding the mystery of his plan. I mentioned Ruth earlier. I mentioned the wonderful story of Ruth. The story of Ruth ends with Ruth marrying Boaz. And you read that story and you find out who Ruth would eventually give birth to. Now go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We begin 1 Samuel 16 with, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Here it comes now. Since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Samuel, how long are you going to pout? I've already made this decision. I'm not going to reverse it. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. In other words, pack your suitcase you got a flight to catch. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, you know where Jesse comes from? Guess who his great-grandparents were? The children born to the marriage between Ruth and Boaz. Jesse gives birth to David. Actually, his wife does. Gives birth to David. <laughs> David is born as the offspring that is traceable to the marriage between this Jew, Boaz, and this Gentile, Ruth. Now we have the connection. Why is the story of Ruth there? To create the lineage. To create the genealogy of King David, who would become the king of Israel, to prototype for us King Jesus, the king of the universe. He says, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Notice he doesn't tell him which one. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul's going to hear about it and kill me. Samuel knew that whenever he got on a plane and traveled, the press went with him. Wherever Samuel went and he was on the move, the press was on the move. Why? Because when Samuel moved from place to place, he was moving for a reason. For the most part, when Samuel went to a town, he was usually there to deal with the sin in that town. 
He was the moral leader of the nation. He was the prophet and the priest. When he, when he came into town, people stood up and took notice. They, they actually would say, uh-oh, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. But in this particular case, Samuel knew that if he started moving, he had already pronounced that Saul would no longer be king, that, this, that the kingdom would be ripped from him. Samuel reasoned to himself, if I start moving, Saul is going to, to see my movement as I'm going to anoint another king, and he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you. Didn't say, I understand your fears. Didn't even comment on his fears, by the way. He said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. One step at a time. That's what faith is. One step at a time. You afraid, Samuel? Take one step. Take the heifer. Take the oil. Go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. I'll tell you what to do with it. Uh, verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. I love that. When he arrived at Bethlehem, by the way, this ought to trigger your fancies a little bit about prophetic snapshots. Where's all this happening? In Bethlehem. Something else happens in Bethlehem a few years later, doesn't it? There's another king that's born in Bethlehem. There's another one who would be anointed years later in Bethlehem. We'll find out more about that later. Not later today, I'm almost finished. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? I love that. You come in peace. Are we in trouble here? They tremble. Are we in trouble here? Samuel replied, yes, I come in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Notice he doesn't say I've come to anoint a king. Nobody knows he's there to anoint a king. Consecrate yourselves, come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now let me summarize as I close what happened here. They're sitting at the sacrifice. There is no temple, the tabernacle, the ark is gone. It's in hiding somewhere. There is no worship center, so to speak. So whenever sacrifices were produced, they were produced in the home. So he comes to the home of Jesse. They have this sacrifice. He's never met this man before. It's the first indication of who Jesse is. We now have the connection to the book of Ruth. We see God is unfolding something. Samuel didn't know all that. Not yet. He's there to observe the sons of Jesse. He's there to anoint a king. He is there in obedience. Nobody else knows this. So verse 6 says, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely this kid's a looker. This is the Lord's anointed standing here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider the fact that he's six foot two, dark and handsome. For I have rejected him. And when you read later on about Eliab, you find out why. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Underline that in your Bibles. Take that to work with you tomorrow. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then called Shammah passed by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. One by one, the Lord said, eh. Not the one. All seven of them passed by. Samuel says, you got any more boys out there? Oh yeah, we got this little redhead sitting out in this, the sheep pen, tending the sheep. He's the youngest one. Not even worthy in his father's eyes to pass by the prophet who's in town. Oh, we got the redhead boy. By the way, by the way, redheads were rare in Middle Eastern culture. They were considered to be fair, and they were considered to be extraordinarily handsome because of their red hair. So any of you redheads here, you're considered to be extraordinarily handsome because of your red hair. But this particular guy was the runt of the litter. He wasn't ugly, he was good looking. He was exceptionally good looking, in fact, but he wasn't in his father's eyes estimated the same way that Eliab was, or Abinadab was, or Shema was, or any of the other seven sons. Samuel says, go get him. They bring this smelly, dirty shepherd in. And God says to Samuel, that's the man. Anoint him. Now, there's every indication here, by the way, that nobody knew in that room what was going on. Maybe not even David. They didn't fully put it all together. It wasn't unusual for a prophet to come in the context of sacrifice and anoint the sons of the home in which he was, in which he was enjoying the meal. I believe there was every indication that this was a private anointing. This was something that was done privately between Samuel and David. The other brothers didn't know what was going on, indicated by the fact that when it was all over, David packed up his bags and went back out to take care of the sheep. Doesn't say, oh man, I'm the king. I, I, better, go, I better go get my king robe on. I better go take a bath and get this dirty smell off me. I better go and, 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 and get ready for, to, 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 to hold an audience for my people. Didn't do any of that. Just went back to tending sheep. And Samuel leaves. But God had already anointed him. Next time we're together, I'm going to show you how all this fits our Messiah. How all this comes together into a beautiful mosaic. And we see that with every one of these anointings, and there are three of them on David, we have parallel anointings on Jesus the Messiah. And we see that one types the other. And we see the unfolding of God's majestic plan of redemption. God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the heart. He has called you for a reason and set you in the context of your environment for a reason. He has anointed you with his Holy Spirit if you know him. He has given you all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. He has empowered and equipped you and called you in a, in a very unique and singular way to minister the gospel of grace. He looks at the integrity of your heart, but that's not why he calls you. He looks at the talents and the abilities you possess, but that's not why he calls you. He calls you to take those very things, those very qualities, to have them harnessed by his grace into the perfect plan of redemption where you fit the puzzle, where you are the part of that puzzle that makes for that mosaic that he's building. 
Every one of you is unique in that regard. Every one of you is called in that regard. Every one of you who know him. Every one of you who put your faith and trust in him. He doesn't care what you look like on the outside. Doesn't care what impressions you make. Doesn't care what power you wield. Doesn't care how influential you think you are. What he wants is shepherds. Dirty, filthy, servant shepherds who are willing to get into the pen to get filthy if necessary, to tend the sheep, to tend the sheep, the lost sheep of Israel, the lost sheep of the Gentile world that have yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's called you to do. And that's the this calling he's placed on this church. By Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth on your family, God is sovereign, and on your own you heart when you go to work tomorrow. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.